City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Okay, yeah, City Limits on the air again, over the acres and acres of, and uh, today we have two guests on the show coming up. It's a um, it's a fifth Wednesday, isn't it? That's right. It's mm. the last day of the month, in fact. And therefore, we've, we've got two guests, and no, no idea of whom I've lined up, so I'll ask those who line them up to tell us who they are, uh, <laughs> and Meg Kimber's one of them. Okay, Meg. Morning, everyone. Um, yeah, Peter's coming in from Cultivating Community, which is... Um, While you're doing that, I'll just pour some tea. How's that yeah, that's, that's the way that it goes. <laughs> I'll start the show without yeah. the tea. Um, Peter's a food systems team leader at Cultivating Community, and they do a, a range of, of things there that are related to food growing, basically, and um, having looking after the community gardens at most of the public housing estates is one of the things that they do. So that certainly lines up with the kinds of things that we talk about here on City Limits. Um, so she'll be coming in about 20 minutes from now. Yep. Thanks for the tea. And there's another mm. guest in the studio, C2. If you give him that, that's his cup of tea. <laughs> Setu's sitting in the corner over there. And, <laughs> and um, now he's... Eugenia Jubchenko can tell us about C2 is now drinking his tea. Yeah, he, so Setu is um, Setu. visiting from Berlin and he's an engineer who researches energy solutions for remote communities, especially in developing countries. So it'll be interesting to hear about that in relation to um, energy supply in Australia and some of the stuff we were talking about last week about uh, remote Australian communities and um, how nuclear is being pushed as an alternative and renewable solutions, well, renewable options for that. Mm. Cool. Mm. Yeah, be good. it's been pushed as a sustainable solution, which is very good, isn't it? <laughs> they just they love su- putting that word mm. around. As long as you can sustain it for a couple hundred thousand years, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's the day's program, so we'll kick off with our usual. Um, we've got our tea. It's all very nice. Um, just a, a – um, I, tra- I was interested last night, there an ad on television. I was watching uh, commercial television, tut, tut, tut. And oh. – um, AMP, which has uh, landed in a bit of hot water, so to speak, at the Royal Commission and uh, lost its uh, CEO and lost its, its president chairperson and uh, has been attacked from all angles. Its shares have plummeted. Uh, now, it's last night it's advertising this new fund for people to invest in, and it's called the AMP Tomorrow Fund. And I thought, <laughs> how we're stuffed up today. How so. wonderfully appropriate. That's right. <laughs> Tomorrow's all right. They hope Let's we, do it tomorrow. They, they hope we forget <laughs> yesterday. That's right. <laughs> so uh, there we are, the, the Tomorrow Fund. And just as, a, as an absolute, absolute by the by, and not even really funny, but it just struck me as interesting. On the ABC um, classical music show um, station last week, they played a piece by Talaman, and it was called Oh My Canary Is Dead, and the song went oh. on to say that his cat ate the canary. But what I found interesting was that the soprano who sang it, her name was Meals, and I thought that fascinating, seeing the cat ate the canary. But anyway, oh. <laughs> no, no one else thought it was funny, oh. obviously. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for warning us that it wasn't yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Oh, that yeah. went pretty flat, didn't it? <laughs> um, the, uh, nothing worse than a joke no one laughs at. Um, 
just uh, on a serious note, and this was published, this was given a run on the uh, Bricky Show this morning too, with Sue Bolton, the uh, socialist can- uh, councillor mm-hmm. in Moreland, being interviewed. Uh-huh. But we have got a rally on Saturday. More trains on the Upfield Line. Uh, those who are old enough will know that many years ago we fought to save the Upfield Line because the government wanted to close it down. Really? And in fact, the number of us, I, number of us, way back in the eight, we had a group called the Melbourne Transport Study Group, and we ran candidates in one of the state elections on a public transport party policy, and ran a candidate in the seat of Melbourne um, around the around the city of Upfield Line. But we launched that we launched the campaign on a Sunday on the railway tracks at. Royal Park because we knew that we made the point and got good media coverage <laughs> that there was no chance of being run over because in those days the upfield line <laughs> actually stopped from 7pm Saturday until Monday morning. Oh, no. um, so it's a lot, big improvement now. We get a 20 minute service. It's wonderful. Um, and as I keep saying, we're the only line that when it goes on a holiday timetable, nothing changes. But um, <laughs> anyway, there's a, there's a campaign on, 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 on this is Saturday, 11 o'clock at... Um, the upfield station, the end of the line, because the top end from Gowrie has only got one line, and that's the argument why they can't run more regular services because they need the turnaround at the top end. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're uh, the campaign is one of its first, obviously one of its first um, um, lines of no, one of its first. What's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Um, is demands? That's the word I'm looking for. Um, one of its first demands is uh, the dime be duplicated. But anyway. People are meeting, and it's um, it's eleven o'clock. But people are meeting on Jewel Station to catch the ten thirty eight train, Coburg Station the ten forty five, which is the same train, and Faulkner Station the ten fifty one, which is still the same train, <laughs> and meet in the front carriage. And so we hope people do get there on Saturday. It's got part of a long term campaign. A group's formed recently to do more to upgrade the whole line and the whole service out there, plus to increase it, to extend it, and to provide a new station at Campbellfield, which hasn't got one. There's a long gap between Gowrie and there. So so it's um, we hope people along that line and anyone interested in public transport can come to that on Saturday. So when you all meet in the front carriage, then is there like a, a choir or a sing-along or something? Oh, there that, could be. I would could, love yes, that. Yes, I think about yes. that all the time. Mm. I think as everyone's standing on the train. I've been in choirs like on and off over the years. Everyone's just standing in the train looking at their phones. I just, mm, sometimes yeah. I have a very – it's very difficult to resist the urge to start a sing-along mm. and just be like, okay, everyone, what does everyone know? Like, let's get going. Well, you could do Casey Jones, uh, you know, the, the railway driver, the American song of Joe Hill. But, of course, yeah. it became – there, there was a tele- black-and-white television series years ago about Casey Jones and what a hero he was to the song, but it was to the Joe Hill words. But the original oh, yeah. words by Joe Hill were – Casey Jones scabbing on the workers, oh. uh, but they didn't run that bit. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, so there you are. We could have a whole episode about <laughs> songs. We could. <laughs> Union songs. Um, just, we think we're going to kick off with the Herald Sun as usual. Um, I just found them interesting with one of their, another one of their stories on Monday morning. Uh, inner city ratepayers could pay thousands of dollars for prominent political messaging by their council. Again, waste of money. And indeed, these are these are uh, banners that will say climate emergency. Yarra commits to strong action to keep warming below one point five degrees, and an updating, um, updating the um, we welcome refugees banners, which are getting pretty old now. Mm. So it's those sort of things. But the Herald Sun thinks that's a disgrace and a complete waste of money. Mm. Political advertising, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. Complete okay. waste. Complete mm. waste. Speaking of wastes, um, why would I think Donald Trump's a waste? But anyway. Oh. Um, 
the um, the financial review has really shown itself to be pretty perspicacious because it's worked out that Donald Trump's attacks on the um, on the pedestrians, the the caravan attempting to come across from Central America, mm-hmm. and poor buggers have got a long, long mm-hmm. way to go walking. They along. won't get there before the midterms. No, that's mm-hmm. right. Well, that's the important point. They point out they've suddenly realised that what this this is what they call his tamper moment. Um, relative to John Howard using it to, uh, as with the election coming up, to um, disparage refugees and treat Mm. them as such. And get get his supporters mobilised, basically. Mm. That's right. So he's he's whipping up, as usual, the the worst elements of American society, and there's a few of those. Mm. Um, Speaking of America, by the way, just as a by-the-by again... Um, Halloween today. Uh, I Happy Halloween! Riding mm. up, um, riding up Smith Street, I saw a woman with a witch's hat and this black outfit, and I thought, why do we have to copy every American culture there is? Suddenly, we've got another one. And it, uh, Halloween wasn't originally American at all, anyway, but they've yeah. adopted it as purely as a commercial retail make money it's thing. It's very commercial. And suddenly, it's yet another aspect of American culture. The only good thing is on the Brecky show they were talking about it and having zombies and things, and I thought, well, if zombies are the big go of the day. It could well be Peter Dutton's days <laughs> comes into his own on Halloween Day. Um, nice segue. <laughs> the, the only man who hasn't got to dress up for the day. Um, I just want to put in a little defence of Halloween. I've been in America for two Halloweens, and um, it is a very commercial experience. And they have things in the shops which are absolutely over the top. Like things are crazy in terms of like the waste and the kind of commercial yeah. product products that are just put out there Everything's so it's like isn't it's it? like easter and christmas like you start seeing things in supermarkets just piles and piles of pumpkins just for carving and etc mm. but i think the, the the sweet thing about it is that it's it's a very community building event mm. so it's not something that it's become commercialized but traditionally i think in the states you know you you you'd go around all the houses in your neighborhood and you'd meet your neighbors so i'm mm. i'm a big mm. fan of that aspect of it mm. And um, kids, kids knowing who their neighbours are, I think makes for safer and healthier and happier communities. Mm. So, That's right. cool. Mr. Yeah. Friendly and Mr. Grizzly or whatever. <laughs> 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 yeah. Okay. Um, now, this is um, interesting. I thought um, Rio Tinto, their um, chief executive, a bloke called John Sebastian Jacques has um, suggested that governments should accept more project risk in um, in mining because governments want to keep taking a bigger share of the mining royalties and charge them more for the, their things. So therefore, governments should be prepared to accept it. And he says if a community or government wants a bigger share of the pie, they may need to be willing to take on more of the risk that's a really important part of our very capital-intensive industry. So maybe there needs to be a new way of funding mining projects. As an industry, perhaps it is time to think about a different business model where we provide mining as a service and let other people finance projects that need billions in upfront investment before the benefits can be shared and he goes on on that vein wow so he wants the he That's effectively incredible. wants the public purse to finance the mining project they pretty much do anyway. destroy the environment <laughs> and um and then one assumes before the benefits can be shared is where he comes in um, <laughs> yeah one i was gonna sh- say it's because the yeah. private companies are just not doing well enough from this whole enterprise you know that's right that's right and he says we need to start to have honest and grown-up conversations with all of our stakeholders etc etc and um, he, this is an interesting part. He says uh, economic and social progress versus doing an activity that does, does impact on the environment, he will say. So uh, mm. he's concerned 
about the environment. It's good to know that Rio's concerned about the environment, isn't it? <laughs> They, they don't like having to clean up afterwards. No, no. And last week, while you were enjoying Perth, um, we mentioned uh, this story, Eugenia. Um, the, I mentioned about Quadrilla, the one in Britain that's, gonna, that's starting fracking, and pointed out, we mentioned it on air last week, but um, yeah, obviously, <laughs> listening, listening that stage, intently, took obviously. That one, took that one in. Uh, <laughs> that one really gripped you. Anyway, that, that in fact there had been an earth tremor some years ago, and they and, and they had they to stop doing it. And then, but the, again. they went to court and they got permission, and the, the court ruled in their favour to start. But they've had a bit of an unfortunate kickoff. Mm. Um, it began hydraulic fracturing operations. Um, in October, on October 15, but in its first two weeks, the company has issued three press notices of seismic events, mm. the last of which prompted an 18-hour pause in operations. It had to suspend operations at 11.30 local time Friday after it detected a micro, and it goes on about some details about the size of the scale from the Richter scale, which registers as a red event in the traffic light system used by the British Oil and Gas Authority and requires an automatic suspension of activity. Uh, this followed earlier micro-seismic events of etc., etc., both of which qualify as amber events. The geological, the British Geological Survey has recorded 17 tremors in the Blackpool area around the site since fracking began, most of which were reportedly trailing events that happened after the fracking had stopped. The company said in a statement after Wednesday's tremor that a seismic event falling between naught and 2 on the Richter scale was hundreds of orders of magnitude below what is capable of being felt, much less caused damage. <laughs> damage or harm at surface. After Thursday's tremor, it said that an average of about 8,000 micro-seismic events were detected around the world each day, and they were very rarely deemed newsworthy. Uh, <laughs> good heavens. <laughs> Everything so far has been within our operational expectations. Well, probably that would blow the place up. <laughs> in line with the work we're carrying out, again, in line, well, that's right, we're doing work that blows the place up, and reported appropriately, etc., etc. So there we are, but they keep telling us Calm fracking Calm down, is, everyone. Fracking, <laughs> fracking safe as. Mm. I've never heard of fracking in the UK. Is that a recent phenomenon? Well, yeah. You should have heard of it last week, which it weren't. <laughs> I swear it wasn't last week. <laughs> sure it wasn't the week before? We did talk about it the week before. Yeah. Did we? I oh, think yeah. it's the week before. Oh, did I, am I, sorry, I apologise, Eugenia. Wrongly accused. <laughs> right, yes, that's right. <laughs> well, then... No, well, they it, have. They had fracking was banned, right, in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Oh. Well, <laughs> so, there we so are. So they just unbanned it. Is that what happened? Well, I think they gave them special dispensation Oops. to to undertake this project, from what yeah, I understand. Right. Yeah. And they went there. Um, well, no, they, they went to court, and the yeah. court ruled it would be. I mean, despite the seismic event three years ago, or whatever yeah. the court, the court British court ruled that they they could go ahead because they they proved to the court that it would be safe. So. Mm, as, it's, as it's shown. Yeah, yeah. only yeah. two on the Richter scale. Yeah. Obviously, nothing is going on. No, that's right. Mm. Yeah. So you maybe you hadn't heard of it before. Right? <laughs> that's <laughs> what I love about this show. You always learn something new. And false, <laughs> false and nasty accusations. <laughs> Thanks for coming to my defence, Meg. <laughs> uh, yes, there we are. I promise I do pay attention <laughs> when I talk to Kevin. <laughs> don't know why. Uh, anyway, at least 70% uh, of the time. Um, <laughs> And while the whole banking thing's been going on and, uh, and, and the need and the government says and people criticise ASIC, the, the authority of the Securities and Investment Commission, for not being harsh enough, and it probably hasn't been, but nonetheless, 
uh, papers the Parliamentary Library released to the Labor Party in the last week show that the government has cut $200 million from its budget since they came to power in 2013. So, And the, the workforce has been slashed by an incredible percentage, 20% staff cuts in that time. Mm. So that's one of the reasons why they're not doing their job, I guess. That, mm. And the government says t- accuses them of not doing their job well, that's all going on. Mm. Uh, which brings us to, is the other person coming in shortly? We're in a, we... Yeah, about 20 past. Okay, yeah. okay. Once they do, we'll move on. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you'll be surprised to hear this, but um, one in five Australians believes banks act ethically. Only one in five. That means four out, five, four out of five. Four out of five. Four out of five don't. And only one in four thinks banks take responsibility for mistakes and keep their promises to customers. Now I find this incredibly surprising. There's the bell now at the door, so it's probably someone. Um, it's got to be someone. And uh, the um, what I find surprising is that one in five thinks they do act ethically. And mm. one in four thinks they take responsibility. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. Where are these it? people? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now, some, there's a large percentage of those one in the, the other percentages who actually have no idea. They, they're not sure. But I thought, again, what is there not to be sure about, mm. about, about their ethics? Anyway, that's, that's that. Um, and at the same time, the same people still trying to get their foot in the door into workers' super money um, say there's a bloke called uh, Chris Bricky, B-R-Y-C-K-I, he's an investment person and he now runs an investment on, online investment advising service and he says the main reason why industry funds have performed better is their use of unlisted assets such as property and infrastructure which have performed very well over many years. Now he's using that as an argument to say that they're not, not any better really. Now I would oh. have thought that's an argument why they are. Yes, it clearly uh, is. I rather think he's pr- proving our point rather than his. Um, and it's always he go- great when that happens. Yes. And he goes on to say, our view is that fees and asset allocations account for almost all of the differences in performance. Well, again, that's what we say, the fees the banks take out. Yeah. So he's not, he's not a great argument. <laughs> I, I, I must say, I'd hate, he on? I'd hate to be on his side in a debate. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that's the, that may have been our guest. If it is, we'll, uh, we'll, yeah. we'll take a break and check that out. All right.
Okay, we're back on City Limits on 3CR and our guest Peter Christensen is in the studio. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. Um, so you're from Cultivating Community. I am. You're a food systems team leader. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what Cultivating Community is yeah. and your role there? So we are an NGO based in Richmond um, and uh, we're around, our work is around uh, community food projects and urban agriculture, food security, that kind of thing, mm. um, which means that we, one of our main program areas is we look after the community gardens on public housing estates. Mm-hmm. So we have, I think, something like 21 gardens across 18 estates or something like oh, that. Cool. Um, and uh, we also have a school garden program and mm. then we do other. And so as the food systems team leader, my kind of work is the other stuff that's outside of the community gardens on the housing estate. So it might be... Mm after school cooking or community lunch um, or like um, beds, uh, garden beds outside of the garden that everybody can access mm-hmm. and, you know, herb beds and fruit trees and things like that. Awesome. How long has Cultivating Community been doing this kind of work? Well, we're about to celebrate in November our 20th birthday. That's so, awesome. um, yeah, 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 so 20 years, mm-hmm. yeah. And the public housing um, estates that you work on, um, what's the effect of having community gardens there? Because I'm not sure whether a lot of people are aware that community gardens are, you know, operating and, and maintained in those spaces. How do they work and what do you see happening there? So they're, they're all different, um, but they're a plot-based garden. Um, and the idea is, I guess, that if you live in a flat and you don't have access to land, that mm. you can have a plot in the community garden to grow food. Um, and so people pay an annual fee and then they have access to the garden. They have a key so they can come in any time they like, um, but then they also have a support worker who comes once a week and will spend time in the garden um, just either supporting the actual gardeners themselves mm. to might be with seeds or seedlings or um, information about what to grow, 
Uh, most of our gardeners, you know, we've got something like 30 different language groups represented in the community mm. garden. So mm-hmm. people come from many, many different cultures and backgrounds mm. and many of them have grown food, you know, all their life. It's a strong part mm. of their culture and who they are. So it's not necessarily that we're teaching people how to grow food, mm. but sometimes they might have a, come from a different climate or grown different things or, mm. um, you know, ha- haven't necessarily grown in a community garden setting. So, mm. you know, the support workers there to kind of just assist them um, and you know, be that point of contact. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, for people having had, for many people, you know, it's about growing your own food. Um, but and so, you know, that that that's like a food security thing. So you have access to fresh food all the time. But for many people, you know, because they're specific cultural foods that they're growing in the garden, um, then they might not be able to find them anywhere else. You know, mm-hmm. you can't go down to Coles and, buy you know, buy it. Yeah. That's right. You can't buy sugarcane at Coles, for example, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's having that access to those very culturally significant and important foods. Um, as well as the many yeah. other benefits, mm. so mental health and physical health and um, community mm. and yeah. getting to know other people and, yeah, all those things. Yeah, there's a community garden up the road from me in Bar- the Barclay Street Flats in Brunswick. And, oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's one of yours or not. Because no, it, it that's hasn't, not one of ours. It hasn't got, no, I didn't think so because they haven't got a key. It's not locked up like yeah. that. But I often see, it's mostly for older people, those flats, and yes. I often see them out in that garden working that's great. away. That's yeah, yeah. So they spontaneously set it up, obviously. Yeah, yeah, and there can be a few different models. Um, and, you know, there's lots of different models of community garden projects. Ours is quite specific. And, you know, mm. we have, um, you know, they're, they're mostly ours are in the bigger kind of towers, although we do have some, you know, on the kind of older people's estates and things like that. Mm. Um, you know, I guess the difference is having that support worker to kind of come along and, um, mm. you know, just be that regular yeah. point of contact yeah. and mm. keep everything ticking yeah, over. Yeah, because when they're not locked, with it locked, I think, well, anyway, I can go in and pinch, the, you know, when it, when it ripens, when it's already to be yeah. picked, people can just come in and knock it off. Yes, that's right. And that does happen. <laughs> and, um, and that happens even when the garden's locked. So, you know, yeah. I think it's part and parcel of being part of a community garden. There's yeah. an element where you have to just kind of go well that's that's all part of it and maybe hopefully I'll get this bit and you know that bit's for the universe or something you know <laughs> well, well I was ra- I was raised um down the bayside area when back of Moorabbin was all was all market gardens yeah. in those days is now real estate but yes. they were, it was wonderful for kids to go down and knock off watermelons and things not that I'd say I'd do anything <laughs> no, like that. no, of course not. <laughs> but um that sort of thing um yeah they were, but of course that's another question because one of the one of the factors is all those market gardens on the edge of Melbourne are mm. now mostly housing. Mm. Now that's that's a bad loss in terms of our Absolutely. feeding ourselves, yeah. particularly in food miles. Well, that's right. And, you know, I think there's a really great um, report that uh, Melbourne Uni have done recently. I think it's called the Food Print, Melbourne's Food Print, something like that, Food Print Melbourne. Um, and uh, they talk about exactly that. So, you know, we've got a growing population um, and we, you know, currently provide a certain amount of food for ourselves, but we actually need to be providing more. Um, and we're, you know, um, paving over and growing houses instead of food. Um, and that's that's really going to be a problem into the future. So, um, yeah, I think we really need to be thinking about our planning mm. when it comes to that kind of thing. And, mm. you know, growing food in the city is one thing, but it's certainly not – we're not necessarily going to be able to grow the same amount that we would be able to on those kind of peri-urban mm. um, green wedges. Mm. Yeah. So in a way it's almost like a um, not only a really positive thing for public housing but also potentially a model for um, urban 
uh, high density housing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I think that, uh, you know, the more that we don't have any backyards or yeah. front gardens to garden in anymore, it's very important that we include these sort of things when we're designing mm. uh, urban environments. And, you know, as we say, more and more high density building around the city because people actually need access to that kind of space to get their hands dirty and yeah. have the opportunity to grow food and, yeah. and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, mm. So considering that, how how did this project get started 20 years ago? It seems forward-thinking now because lots of high-density pro- properties don't have a yeah. consideration for urban spaces and, and yeah. food growing. And I guess it started because people, you know, I really believe that growing food and having access to land like that is very much a human need, you yeah. know. And I think that's how our program started was because people just started gardening. You yeah. know, they were living in high-density, high-rise living. You know, they just needed to grow food. Mm-hmm. So they were just kind of planting out wherever they could on the estate. And there mm-hmm. is land on the estate yeah. and so some people were able to kind of, um, uh, I guess, organise and get a um, community garden going um, with a, you know, more of a structure. And then other people would be just gardening wherever they could. So they'd just kind well, of put out there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. they'd have out there, you know, lots and lots of those polystyrene boxes and just growing <laughs> food, you know, wherever. And herbs and um, things. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And then I think um, then the DHHS recognised what was happening um, and, you know, there was a bit of uh, rallying as well and, um, mm-hmm. you know, they took a little bit of lobbying to kind of mm-hmm. get this program as a program mm-hmm. um, and uh, early work by um, local Abbotsford man um, Basil Natoli, he was very instrumental in the early days um, to kind of showcase to the DHHS how important these gardens were mm-hmm. and he, in fact, um, uh, was that you know he had the idea to um, to get one of the the community gardens in Collingwood as part of the open garden scheme. So oh. this was like the first time a garden like that had been showcased in you know what was very yeah. much a kind of uh, home you know showcase garden style um, event. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he had people coming from all over to you know visit these gardens in Collingwood to kind of really lift the profile mm. and demonstrate that these are actually very important spaces. So it was a long campaign. Pain. Mm. Um, it didn't happen overnight, but um, we've we've been doing it, you know, for twenty years. So, mm. um, yeah, well, yeah. Cr- fingers crossed, it's it, here to stay. It's really lovely that it kind of emerged from the housing estates themselves, yeah, absolutely. Of kind of being, you know, from a different organisation. Yes, yes. And so the name of the organisation is Cultivating Community, right? So yes. So what, um, what kind of benefits do you see in terms of like people's social life when they get involved in a project like this? Absolutely. So I think for, um, for you know, traditionally we've been in the community gardens for the last 20 years and then uh, you know, the, the, the community garden, you know, they themselves have their own um, building community. So mm-hmm. just even gardening next to somebody, um, you know, that gardening and food is a common language. So if you don't, if, if you don't speak the same language... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can look over at someone else's chilies or tomatoes and kind of go, oh, what's going on there? And, you know, before, it's that kind of inevitably people want to share as well. And so, you know, those relationships are formed and built. And people talk about how prior to being in the garden that they may not have known anybody, that they, you know, would walk around, you know, with their eyes down and, and felt, you know, um, anxious about potentially making eye mm. contact or, you know, speaking to anybody in the lift. But once you kind of know some of the people in the garden, you can 
and say hello and, mm. you know, uh, it's it's a really nice, um, safe and uh, in a way I guess it's a passive way to get to know people. Mm. It's, it's, not, it's non-threatening. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but also now we do uh, community lunches and other kind of – we've got an oven in our – a garden in Fitzroy, so we you know have pizza nights and uh, that bringing people together around food is a really lovely mm. way to also you know if you share a table with somebody yeah. um, that that's a, a shared experience so and you, you feel safer bread, so and yeah mm. that's right so your sense of place and your sense of community um, is can be really strong uh, around coming together around food mm. yeah it sounds and great. I assume that. For the people, I mean, wouldn't you wouldn't save all you're going to spend, but it must save them a fair bit in terms of what they spend annually on vegetables. It's well, I would say so, and especially things like herbs and things like mm. that, whereas if you were to buy a bunch of herbs, they're really expensive. So expensive. Yeah, I, I go to the market every week and buy a couple. So yeah, I know, yeah. And, and for some people they might not. You know, like you, you, have, you want to make something, but you don't necessarily need that big bunch of herbs, and so yeah. often it can get wasted. So if you can just go down and, and pick your mm. herbs, that's, you know, that's going to yeah. save you money. And then, of course, people save seeds, and then yeah. they will exchange plants with each other so you know i don't mm. think people have to generally spend a lot of money on their mm. plants yeah. and yeah mm. yeah sounds good there's also the ones in schools that uh, Stephanie Alexander's involved mm. with. Are you related to that at all mm. or is it separate, totally separate? It is separate. Um, however, we did start together. So um, uh, I, in fact, was the first gardener in Collingwood at um, the site there. And uh, so we were we kind of went along together for a while in that program. And um, and then now ours is, our work is very much predominantly on public housing estates. Uh, and, and, you know, so our model has kind of changed a bit. Um, so it's a very similar kind of thing. It's really mm. about getting having access to land and, and being able to you know grow food. Um, but our program doesn't necessarily have the kitchen component. Mm. So even though they might use some of the food to prepare uh, some of the, you know the produce to prepare food, um, it's not necessarily a, a full kitchen session or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So that's working in schools or yeah, working yeah. in schools. So I think we have nine schools at the moment. Yeah. Right. yeah. Cool, and uh, the demand for um, for garden beds um, is it able to? Are there enough beds to meet the kind of how many people are looking to be involved in the gardens? It depends. Yeah. So um, I think we have eight hundred gardeners altogether across all of the estates, um, but of course there are way many people than that that live on you know twenty estates across Melbourne, mm. um, and some gardens have a waiting list, and other gardens you know they they might have vacant plots. So mm-hmm. um, generally they're they're all pretty full, um, and most places you know where you might have to wait, you might have to wait six months or something like that. So it's not, not necessarily bad. a huge yeah. wait. Um, However, we also acknowledge that there are people who want to be involved in community food projects but don't necessarily want to have a plot in a community garden. And I guess that's my role is to um, activate some of those other um, community spaces for food um, activity. So it's not necessarily um, gardening, although it could be in more that kind of communal style gardening, Mm -hmm. um, but also kind of uh, skill building or cooking together or sharing a meal and that kind of Mm -hmm. thing, or composting, Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Learning those food waste avoidance, yeah. that kind of thing. Way yeah. back in the 80s, before community gardens were, you know, burdened so much, yes. uh, Fitzroy Council ran a program on the, um, on the local estate for women, um, particularly around a number of issues to it. But one of the issues was um, pointing out how they could 
buy wonderfully good food, much more cheaper than the processed rubbish they were buying at the supermarkets. Yeah. Is, is that sort of part of the advantage that comes across, that people learn to definitely to eat much more cheaply and better? Yes, yes, that's definitely um, the, the, I guess, uh, underpinning uh, values that, you know, that or, or things that we're thinking about when we're doing community meals. So um, we usually do vegetarian, um, seasonal, uh, lots of kind of plant-based things. And and so we'll we'll also introduce some of our recipes, but we ask people to share their recipes too. So um, it's a great way to share culture as Mm. well as as food. And Mm. as you say, kind of having an understanding of what some of those foods are, because most people, you know, as newly arrived people, you will have a pretty strong food culture. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when you come to Australia and the food's pretty different, Mm. you know, it's, you can end up going down a bit of a rabbit hole of, um, of foods that aren't, you know, really deviate from your traditional culture Mm -hmm. and cannot be that good for you. Mm. So, you know, really kind of thinking about, you know, well, what do you put in your kid's lunchbox, for example, if Mm, you've never had to do that before or, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah, and it must be shocking for people to to come in and see the cost of... of, of food, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, that's in right. A lot of places yeah. that seem like that are, you know, obviously where you get food from. Even um, for me, moving from Hobart, I had a slight culture shock, mm-hmm. um, not being able to just find um, local growers. Yeah, basically. yeah, 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 and the things that you're used to, and yeah. probably your growers, and yeah, yeah exactly that kind you know, of thing. You ha- it takes a while to to build the knowledge mm. of where you can get those kind of things from, and yeah, in a very urban environment, for good projects. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, that that's one of the great things about like there's the community grocer who run um, the uh, affordable fruit and veggie markets on the estate. Mm. So in Fitzroy and there's one in Carlton and they've got a couple of other ones around Melbourne now as well. And that idea, because not only can the food be unfamiliar, but for sometimes, you know, if you've got to get public transport mm-hmm. to the shops and then you've got to carry everything home or, you know, for lots of reasons, that's pretty hard for people. So being able to just come downstairs and access yeah. fruit and mm-hmm. veg is really important. Yeah. Mm. And they do provide things like okra or, you know, whatever is mm. the particular vegetables and things that are appropriate for that community too. And um, <coughs> we'll might be close to our last question unless yeah, no, anyone's no, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so just curious to know uh, whether you're aware, cultivating community knows how many um, people engage as um, uh, newly arrived uh, people and how many have been like part of the estate for a long time and that kind of um how those kind of groups whether they're very separate or whether they sort of mix more in in this setting if you know what I mean yeah um I think we don't ask that question necessarily um so uh but however you can kind of determine you know whether people's level of English and you know things like that Um, and and you know just getting to know people you get to know their stories and that kind of thing so I would say that most of our people most of our participants are from overseas Mm -hmm. and some people have been here for for 30 years and other people are newly arrived and maybe there's a maybe it might be a bit half half Mm -hmm. Um, I just really hazarding a guess here, just mm-hmm. from my kind of feel and experience. Um, but definitely that kind of wide um, spread of cultures and um, 
and their stories and and food experiences from other places is very significant to all of the work that we do yeah it sounds like such a great project Mm. to me is it is it unique do you think in in the broader setting of things like there are community gardens as well there's loads of there's a really strong community gardening and urban agriculture Mm. movement especially in melbourne Mm -hmm. and i think uh you know we've been doing this for 20 years so i think 20 years ago it wasn't like Mm. it is now in Mm. melbourne the conversation has really shifted and uh, there's a lot more activity and it's very very exciting Mm. and I think not only at the grassroots level but you know all the way up there's um, to some degree I mean I think you know we've still got a ways to go Mm. but there is um, a lot of acknowledgement around how um, important and um, you know vital in lots Mm. of ways this work Mm. is Um, yeah, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> well, you just answered. Oh, are, we, are we unique? Um, so I, I guess oh, yeah. we're unique in a public house. You know that ours is very specific around low-income communities. Yeah, um, yeah. that's that. Oh, and and then you know the kind of cultural stuff that comes with that would probably mm. be our niche. Mm. However, we're part of a broader picture. I would mm. say yeah. of urban food security. Good answer. Yeah. Thanks. All right. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Peter, Pleasure. from right. Cold Vaining Community. Now, mark your points down for that one. We've got one to go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a couple of CSAs and we'll be back in a minute. All right. So we're back on City Limits and our next guest is going to be Seju Pelt. Hello. Hi, Seju. <laughs> Welcome to the studio. So Seju's visiting from Berlin and he's a researcher who specialises in um, energy access for remote communities, especially mm-hmm. in uh, developing countries. So um, do you want to start by just talking a little bit about uh, why you're interested in this research and why it's really important? Yeah, sure. Um, so globally, we have a really big problem with energy access, um, not just in developing economies, but also um, in in countries like Australia in, in remote communities. Um, but just like a, a, a number which is sort of in in my head right now, is there's over 1.5 billion people with no access to electricity in the world wow. and uh, 2.5 billion who still cook with firewood. So the problem is really, is really present. It's really there. It's been there for a, a while. And um, there's a lot of work being done now, especially through the new sustainable development goals that were released in 2015 by the UN. Um, to sort of um, move us towards a, a sustainable future where everyone has the basic human requirements to have a, a happy life. Um, and energy was sort of finally recognized as one of the really big ones. Mm-hmm. So now there's many projects happening, um, a lot of investment happening to, get, to move this forward. Because mm. one of the things that I think about in terms of energy on a, on a global perspective is... Um, you know, access to the electricity so you can cook or study or, you know, like um, have, have access to those kind of things that, yeah, means that you have more opportunity. And then the knock-on effect from something like um, young women being educated is, yeah, is, is better human rights, you know, that mm. they're correlated in, in, in countries. So. Yeah, actually there's many papers have been written recently that just show how, how, how much of a key resource energy is in mm. unlocking these other mm-hmm. other essential sort of uh, human rights and mm. you've already mentioned them yeah gender mm. equality mm. and education yeah. health um etc so mm. yeah so have you have you found that there's a sort of relationship between the amount of energy that a household consumes and their like quality of life yeah so there's lots of potentially controversial studies that have been done and actually the sustainable development goals have a conflicting have a conflicting target. So on one side, they want to push energy consumption because it has been shown that energy consumption 
is an indicator for household wealth and well-being. Mm. At the same time, though, we are moving towards a world with finite resources. We're living in a world with finite resources, and we also have the energy efficiency goal, which is part of the same um, mm. target. And and that goal is kind of a bit at odds with the energy consumption goal. So mm. that's actually where it's a really really good segue into my research. <laughs> it's actually what I'm looking at now is um, understanding better how uh, what what are the energy needs of these rural communities, uh, and then d- designing systems that meet these needs now and can grow in the future as their needs expand over time. So it's 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 more about understanding what they actually require. Uh, rather than making assumptions based on what we think that 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 they need, mm. and, and kind of pushing that on them, mm. yeah, cool. which means having to talk to them and, and discuss what they God, really want. God, no, yeah. talk to the community. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a worry, but you're going to. I do don't it. know how I feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's 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 similar to food on a global scale in the sense that um, very um, economically. Um, wealthy countries have this um, excess of food to the degree that we actually waste a huge amount, maybe 40-50% of the food that's grown either you know, at the beginning or the end of the food cycle um, and similarly energy use is, is in crazy in Australia mm. like um, mm. heating, cooling all mm. of the kind of like um, consumption of energy in that sense mm. and then there's other people who basically are like in energy poverty from the sound of it Absolutely, yeah. just to give you an example so we have um, Bangladesh is a, is, a, is a pioneering country um, just a quick quiz um, <laughs> This has never happened before <laughs> yeah. 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 It's the day of quizzes I'll just throw it out to, to you um, Turning the tables yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Which country do you think has more households powered by solar systems um, or, or in which country yeah. do houses have more solar systems, Australia or Bangladesh? Uh, obviously, well, Bangladesh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to say Australia, but I know it's going to be wrong. It's a trick question, but yeah, it's Bangladesh. They have over 5 million households that just get the energy only from solar with nothing else. Wow. Which is pretty, pretty inspirational. But then I can put it into kind of context. These systems which they have are very small because that reflects what they need right now. And obviously, these needs will change over time and they'll have to modify and grow these systems. But right now, a typical household over there consumes, um, they, they typically have a 40-watt peak system, which is sort of the size of an A3 piece of paper on their roofs. Mm. And so the solar panel itself is the size of an A3 paper? Correct, wow. yeah. And a small battery and they would have two or three lights, potentially a fan mm. uh, and a phone charger. And that's kind of what their level of energy access is. And yeah, then you right. contrast that with, with, with us um, living in a developed country like Australia and you really get an idea of what that inequality looks like. Yeah, right. But here the fossils are complaining now that uh, there's too much solar and it's going to stuff up the grid and, um, and we, mm-hmm. the grid can't, can't stand the impact of all the solar that's going to flow into it. So yeah. it's a greater reason to keep using fossils apparently. Yeah, that's also a big discussion in Germany right now where I'm, where I'm living. Um, but there are many technical solutions to that and... Um, it's actually beyond sort of what I'm looking at. My focus of interest is um, is on the off-grid communities, those who will never get the grid mm. connection or right now haven't got mm. that or have a really poor grid connection and need an alternative because they're never getting the power they need. Mm. Um, so, uh, mm. But certainly that's a, a, very, a very common 
debate. That, yeah. that's, that's, well, that's in fact, the coal industry, of course, also, as Scott Morrison waved a lump of beautiful <laughs> low, <laughs> low emission coal in his hand in Parliament, um, it argues that uh, India needs coal um, mm. because the, we're bringing energy to people and raising their, their standards of living and bringing wealth to the poor, etc. Mm. Um, everyone, you know, it, we do ask at that point, why can't they use solar? Because the sun does shine in India, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> and they are, and it's a really good question. So just in 2016, India had over half a million people with no access to electricity. And um, it goes back from historically the... The Green Revolution in India was where they really brought out uh, the grid to ag- agricultural farms um, and not really to villages. So village electrification in rural areas was never really a priority. And that's changed in the last 20 years. And the government is definitely making a big effort now to, to move this forward. And uh, it's a very complex discussion to have with somebody from the Indian continent mm-hmm. and, and academic because coal is important in India in terms of alleviating energy poverty. But at the same time, it's part of the solution. So it isn't the only solution, and renewables do play a massive role um, in reaching these remote remote communities. So um, the Indian government has expanded out the grid rapidly over the last um, 10 years because they're banking on that as, as a solution. But then if you contrast that to countries like Nigeria or in Zambia, which have similar challenges, um, they're going much more in the direction of a combination of grid extension along with de- de- decentralized solar systems. So explain a little bit the difference between those two things. Oh, sorry. So one, one option is to kind of ex- extend the grid and another option is to to do a separate system? Correct, yeah. So, so typically we have kind of three categories. So you have grid extension, which we, which we all know, and then we have what's called a, a mini-grid system. So it's quite similar to the grid, but it's just a bunch of houses connect or, or, or a village Mm. Connected to each other. Connected to each other, but not mm. to the not to not to the main grid. And then you have the really off grid, the solar home systems, which is literally one panel on your roof mm. with your own little system. Mm. Um, so, I mean, in our experience, even in countries where they have rapid grid ex- extension, the 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 government checks the village office being electrified. When mm. in India, when ten percent of the population has access to the grid, so ninety percent don't, but the village is considered done. Um, and, and, that, and that happens because there are houses that are like further apart that where the grid doesn't reach. Correct. So, mm-hmm. so, so, so these numbers where they say, well, we, we've achieved universal electrification, which was recently pr- promoted by the Modi government. Um, it's a wonderful step forward, mm. but at the same time, many people are left behind. Mm. And this is really where de- decentralized renewables can can give people power now rather than having to wait for them to kind of fix yeah. the grid and get enough power. I mean, they already have incredible power outage issues. So right now what I'm also studying is understanding, okay, they have a, they have a connection to the grid, but what does that actually mean for the household? How many hours of supply do they have per day? Mm. How reliable is it? What can they power with it? And you very quickly realize that despite having the grid, they would get a better supply if they were just given a solar home system. Yeah, they right. would be more reliable and it would actually match what they're wanting to do with it rather than assuming that they need to have a good connection because we think that they need to have a good connection. Yeah, what is this obsession with the grid? Because it seems to me like if um, if you, you're a country that doesn't have an electricity supply and it makes more sense for it to be decentralised, why is there this psychology that the grid is is the uh, is the best sort of option? Yeah, it's, I think it's really ingrained in our, uh-huh. in our, in our psyche somehow. It is... Um, Technically, it is the, the the cheapest kilowatt hour solution when you just consider the cost of generation and also mm-hmm. the incredible subsidies the government puts into this. But we are doing a lot of work to, to show that, um, yes, the grid might be cheapest per kilowatt hour, but by the time you've brought the grid to that household, 
um, mm. or, or this remote community. All the infrastructure that you have to put that in. That infrastructure mm. is incredible. That, that copper costs a lot of money mm. and the household and that village may, not, may never consume enough energy to pay back the cost of that copper alone, let alone the, the generation cost. Yeah. So when you look at it purely economically, mm. there are, I mean, according to the International Energy Agency, of the 1.5 billion with no access to electricity, half would, would be best supplied by off-grid solutions. So for half of those, the grid would never mm. actually reach them. Yeah, well. But that wouldn't support, that wouldn't help the private companies that profit <laughs> from it. So uh, they, you know, the key to the grid really is the private companies make money out of the grid being there. I think a lot of the time that's definitely the case, especially in, in, in countries that, that, that suffered colonialism in the past. Mm. So you have kind of a, often a mix of private-public power generation companies there mm. that have some kind of history in, in how the country was formed and yeah. they're kind of a bit of a monopoly mm. and very often. And, and, and you're absolutely right. They definitely stand to lose when we start, um, start providing people supply mm. uh, to clean electricity with off-grid renewable yeah, systems. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say giving people a solar system, is that a system that can go 24 hours? Because um, that's always the, the problem, isn't it? They say, you know, when the sun yeah. don't shine. Yeah. <laughs> Typically, these systems are kind of battery-powered ba- battery systems, right. and they normally give the household between four to six hours of light in the evening. So again, it's very important to kind of change perspective into the context that we're working in. So these mm. houses have kerosene lamps um, or nothing. They haven't got light in the evening. So for them, 46, 46, 46 hours of light is a, is a really big mm. step up from what they, what yep. they previously had. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah. And so, so it's really interesting to me to think about how this might apply to the Australian context, even though I know maybe that's not the field, your field of study. Mm. Because last week we were talking um, – to the Australian Conservation Foundation about how... Um, I don't remember that. Oh, yes, <laughs> nice one. <laughs> about how nuclear is being pushed as like an alternative for remote Australian communities because there's been these new small nuclear reactors that are being developed and they're saying it's like the, the best and most sustainable way <laughs> of powering these communities. So what? Um, how do you think your research could maybe apply to that context in Australia? Okay, so, I mean, leaving aside the, the big question of where do you put the waste that you've created, mm. which I think is, for From me, nuclear. a fundamental stumbling yeah. block when I think about this te- technology. It impacts Indigenous communities mm. more than... Mm. It's a bit of a handicap, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a little bit of a handicap. Apart from that, um, the biggest challenge we see with, with uh, mini-grid systems is not the technical aspect, but it's the community aspect. It's establishing local structures where which that, that can manage the mini grid, establishing local capacities that can repair this when it when it right. when it breaks, um, and having a kind of a system in place for for billing and payments and mm. over twenty years keeping that organised in a remote community is very complex, mm. and that's really where these projects fail. It's not it's not really a technical challenge anymore. That's and, so interesting, and that's mm. becoming more and more recognised. And it's, it's actually the social aspect of bringing in this new energy source into these communities is really where the research is being done right now. So mm-hmm. we have Monash University in Melbourne that's doing a, starting a PhD research group called the Eradicating Energy Poverty Group, and they're really looking at how does energy access change how a village, mm. the, the, mm. The, the, the social, social fabric structures, yeah. in the village change. But, but just to, to answer your question more directly, I mean, the, the challenge is not that we need a new fancy technology. The, the, the challenge that we have is how do we make these systems embedded into the, into the community? And for that... Mm. Going back to the first thing is you have, you have to talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Which we're going to have to right stop doing, by the way. We're going to have to stop talking because uh, time's we up, but it's unfortunate. Time. But you'll be back in Australia again at some stage. We'll follow this up because uh, it's, it's, it's interesting stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in fact, the, we might even contact the Monash group and see Yeah, we should talk yeah. to them. That'd be great. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Sotu. Thanks very much for having me, yeah. 
Okay. And next week's transport, of course, and John McPherson. And maybe we'll look at Stony Creek next week. I don't know. Yeah. Sometime I'll look at Stony Creek. Great. See you all next week. <laughs>